Sunday morning is always such a special, beloved time for those that are the faithful children of God. A time to begin a new week in the way that the God of heaven has described as not only appropriate, but certainly deserving of the worship we can and should offer to Him. It was mentioned earlier about the thankfulness that we each no doubt feel to assemble and to gather today. And I trust that as we come to this particular aspect of the service, that also our interest in the Word of God never ceases to be a powerful, moving thing for each of us. And as we study for a few moments from the Colossian letter this morning, to be reminded of, in fact, the central subject of not only the Colossian letter, but, yea, the entirety of the Bible itself, Jesus Christ. I chose that title specifically because it seems as if in the book of Colossians, maybe these initial comments would certainly be reasonable ones to make. It is true that as we read the little brief book of Colossians this past week, we found that Jesus was no doubt His central theme and mission. Maybe as much as any other book of the New Testament, we find the words, the phrase Jesus Christ mentioned so often in this book. Make no mistake, Paul set before the ancient church of Colossae the fact that everything in Christ must revolve around Him. Our daily life, the nature of our worship, the specifics of the church, everything revolves around Jesus Christ. I'd like for you and me to develop that thought a bit more clearly this morning as we use chapter 1, specifically the text that Brother Matt read a moment ago in verses 13 to 18. It is a very amazing set of descriptions of Jesus found in those verses. As we perhaps move in that direction, it certainly would be fair to say that one of the major questions that any individual might well face is the personal observation of answering this question. Who is Jesus Christ? The Lord Himself in Matthew chapter 16 made statements along that line to those gathered on that occasion. You may remember that He said, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And those apostles there were quick to respond. Some say that they are Jeremiah, some Elijah, some John the Baptist or one of the prophets. But then the Lord, in a rather noteworthy statement, then said, Who do you say that I am? At that point, Peter responded, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. But may we pause at that point and ask this. It is one of the most comprehensive and one of the most dramatic questions that any human being can ever face. The honest response, Who to you and to me was Jesus Christ? Today, I hope we can use the Colossian letter to help us see a number of the reasonable responses that might be given, a number of the descriptions that might well be appropriate. It is with that in mind, let us then turn to, to those set of verses, verses 13 to 18, and let Paul, by inspiration, remind us who is Jesus Christ. It all begins with that statement of verse 13. Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness? That word who refers to God the Father. And hath translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son, in whom we have redemption. So that word whom there refers to Jesus Christ, in whom we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins. And the first remarkable statement made to you and to me, and yea, for all of time to give appreciation to is this. He, speaking of Christ, is the bringer of redemption, in whom we have redemption. It isn't found anywhere else. 
No other source, no other power, no other authority is such that it can make the offer of redemption. It is only found in the reality, the blessedness, the favor espoused in light of Jesus the Christ. No wonder these comments are then in order. It truly is a remarkable statement to hear Paul make that statement. Remember, he was thoroughly acquainted with all of the official means of the Old Testament. The sacrifices, the trips to Jerusalem, the features of the various and sundry feasts, and yet he could nonetheless say to those in Colossae, in whom, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood. Redemption isn't found by any means of human goodness, if you please. It isn't found by any human appreciations of knowledge or wisdom. It is found in Him. Let's you and I develop that perhaps like this. That death of Christ. It was mentioned in our prayer just a moment ago, wasn't it? And how often you and I are reminded of the need to never allow the certainty of the Lord's death to slip from our mind. We take a memorial on a weekly basis to remind us of the thoroughness, the engaging power and comprehensiveness of that sacrifice. Paul wrote to the Romans in Romans 5, 8, But God commendeth His love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being justified by His blood, we shall be saved through, from death through His life. Romans 5, verses 8 through 10. The characteristic of that sacrificial death, that death not for Himself but for others, is still a monumental thing, isn't it? He died for you and He died for me. As you give thought to that death, look how often Paul reflects upon that as he reminds the same to the Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 14, Paul to them said, The love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge, that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Notice, all of them were dead. And one died for all, that they might live. You and I, apart from Christ, apart from His redemption, simply are dead. Dead spiritually. We are alienated from God, Ephesians 2 verse 12. As such, we have no hope, Ephesians 2 verse 12. And in that condition, we are doomed to eternal separation from Him. Lost indeed. Aliens from everything that's noble, pure, religiously good. And yet, we appreciate Christ, Colossians 1 14 is such that in Him we have redemption. Oh, what magnificence is found in His blood. You and I are washed in it. Revelation 1, verses 5 and 6. When we're baptized, we are covered with that blood, washed from our sins in it. And that cleansing power seen in that blood never ceases to speak volumes. For you and I know without that blood, we have no hope for salvation. You'll notice some of these other passages that directly challenge us. Acts chapter 4 verse 12. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Didn't Jesus Himself say in John 14, 6, That I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. He is the exclusive roadway, if you please, that leads from earth into the portals of heaven. Redemption comes through Him. 
And yet the world has so frequently turned its attention to other messages. Redemption by way of, let's say, human grace. Redemption by way of, let's say, human knowledge. Redemption, let's say, by virtue of a number of other potential life-altering measures. And yet, though they may have something that could be said relative to helpfulness for mankind, they are not such that redemption is in them. There is an exclusiveness to what the Lord has declared. Paul told the Colossians that very thing, didn't he? As you give thought to that exclusiveness, look at perhaps one final passage. In John 10, verse number 10, Jesus there speaking about Himself as the Good Shepherd said, I came that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. He is the one that brings redemption and in that way He brings life. If you and I wish to be spiritually alive, there is but one medicine, but one agency that makes that possible. No wonder as you come near the close of those comments, you appreciate that one of the first things Paul then told the Colossians was redemptions in Jesus. If time permitted us this morning, we probably could devote a fair amount of discussion to the ancient city of Colossae the other messages that they were receiving that were directly opposed to this one, and why Paul placed this near the first of this letter, reminding them up front that as Christians, this is absolutely non-negotiable. Jesus and He alone is the one through whom redemption is found. As you think about the importance of Christ and how He transforms human lives 20 centuries later, I thought we might give thought to a poem it's probably a familiar one, but nonetheless, it seems so appropriate at this time in the lesson. It's entitled, One Solitary Life, and I'd like to read it. He was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another village where he worked in a carpenter's shop until the age of 30. Then, for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family or owned a home. He did not go to college. He never lived in a big city. He never traveled more than 200 miles from the place where he was born. He did none of the things that normally accompany greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He was only 33 when the tide of public opinion turned against him. His friends ran away from him. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies and went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves while he was dying. His executioners gambled for his garments, the only property he owned on earth. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave to the pity of a friend. Twenty centuries have now come and gone, and today he is the central figure of the human family. All of the armies that ever marched all of the navies that ever sailed, all of the parliaments that ever sat, all of the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected life of man on earth as much as that one solitary life. No wonder Paul began the Colossian letter the way he did, reminding them that apart from Christ, apart from that one solitary life, there is no basis to cling and have hope in anything else. No wonder, though, Paul quickly uses that as a, as a springboard. And so why don't you and I then proceed along the path that Paul has set for us? 
Looking at number 2, for verse number 15 now says, Who, and the word who now again refers to Jesus Christ, who is the image of the invisible God. This Jesus Christ, the very one through whom redemption has already been pronounced, is also the image of the invisible God. Let's unpack that statement and note this. The word image in the original language carries the idea of the embodiment or a living manifestation. This Jesus is the living manifestation of the Father. The living manifestation of that great God, the Father in heaven. As you and I develop that, look at these. We know well that God is a spirit, John 4.24. And as such, a spirit does not have flesh and bones, we're told in Luke 24.39. But yet we're told here Jesus is the embodiment, the image of that Father in heaven. Notice that along that line we can appreciate that more than once we have statements reminding us throughout the Word of God of thoughts similar to this one. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. To borrow the language of John 1 verse 1. So there we find He Himself could say, speaking of the nature of Jesus the Christ, He was God. Furthermore, you'll notice that final passage in John 14, 9. On that occasion in which the Lord was asked a question, He said, If you've seen Me, you have seen the Father. While Jesus tabernacled in the flesh, He was the embodiment. He was the physical manifestation of all the perfectness that is in heaven, the perfectness of the Father Himself. No wonder Paul could say He's the image of the invisible God. You and I can't see God with this physical eye, for again, He's a spirit. But when the Lord was in the form of the incarnate Son of God, He could be seen with the physical eye of man, and in that condition... He represented, of course, God Himself. He was the image of the invisible God. I would suggest that you think with me of the equality then that the Lord enjoyed with the God of heaven. Even the Jews recognized by virtue of His teaching in John 5, 18, that by what He taught and the way He taught it, He made Himself equal with God. Paul told each and every one by inspiration in Philippians 2.5, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What a magnificent statement. The image of the invisible God. Maybe one final thought relative to that would bring us to appreciate the plea of several biblical characters like Moses who wished in Exodus 33 to see the glory of God. You may remember that God answered that in a sense by putting Moses in a cleft of the rock and passing by and letting him see the glory of his back parts. But you and I know so well that you and I are in a special sweet place when we, by virtue of membership in the body of Christ, in the family of God, can understand the greatness of God's glory manifested to us
I would invite you then to come to what else Paul has to say. Notice this. Jesus is said to be the firstborn of every creature. Colossians chapter 1 verse 15. The firstborn of every creature. What did Paul mean by that? Let's develop that thought in the following way. We've already learned, haven't we, that Jesus was the second member of the Godhead. He is God. The Scriptures make no, in fact, ambiguity to that point. And yet, we notice He is said to be the firstborn of every creature. You and I notice that Jesus, the Lord, is eternal. He existed before time did, and He shall exist after time is no more. Eternal in that character, everlasting in nature. No wonder then we read in John 8, 58, The Lord Himself said before Abraham was, I am. He existed long before Abraham was ever born. And to the Jews, that was a shocking thing. The Lord, though, taught that He had a pre-fleshly state. Long before He was born there in that, in that city of Bethlehem, our Lord existed. He's eternal. He's said to be the firstborn of every creature. As we develop that thought, notice, several times in the Old Testament, apparently there are clues, there are references to that pre-fleshly state of Christ. It would seem one of them is in Exodus chapter 3, on the very occasion when Moses stood before a bush that was burning but was not consumed. There is every indication that the very one speaking to Moses out of that bush was the second member of the Godhead fully alive and well, and in fact commissioning one to bring His people out of Egypt, the pre-fleshly state of Christ. In Daniel chapter 6, on that marvelous scene in which Daniel was thrown into a den of lions, and yet the king saw not three, or rather those others who were thrown into the fiery furnace. We remember that the king didn't see three, he saw four. Who was the fourth individual? Who was the fourth being apparently? the pre-fleshly Christ. As you and I give thought to the existence of this great one and the way in which He helped individuals to come to know the God of heaven, He ultimately would give His life for the redemption of the entirety of the human family, for those that would obey His will. As you come to the bottom of that slide, and we move our way to the next one, you'll remember that the Father Himself in Hebrews 1 verse number 6 even pointed us in the direction of the firstborn of every creature as He spoke about the nature of that Son. But it seems as if that statement by Paul directly brings us to the next one. In verse number 16 of Colossians 1, this rather extensive statement is found. By Him were all things created. Now that's a clear statement in English, isn't it? By the agency of this One, He brought them into being all things that were created. As you and I read then in Genesis chapter 1 about day number 1 and light was created and day number 2 is the firmament and day 3, you may remember the dry land was gathered, the waters in fact were such that plant life appeared. That in the days that followed, Jesus, the second member of the Godhead, was the physical one carrying out those acts of creation. By Him were all things created. The plan set forth in the mind of the Father was executed by the agency of the creative work of the Son. This fact of creation, in notice, is in us still. Just how grand that is. You and I know today humans can't create anything. 
we can't take what was not formerly in existence and bring something into existence. The laws of science as we now know them absolutely prohibit it. In fact, one of the laws upon which we teach our youngsters from an early age onward is the basic law of conservation of energy that includes matter. Neither matter nor energy can be created nor destroyed. And yet we find here that that second member of the Godhead created, he brought into being that which did not formerly exist. No wonder Hebrews 11 Verse 3 says, By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God, so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. He spoke them into existence. Amazingly, in light of that, you notice that Paul identifies that of which he speaks in part. In verse number 16, Things in heaven and things in earth. As you and I pause to consider things in heaven that He created, that would include the angels. Psalm 148 details the creation of the angels, and the Lord Jesus Christ did that too. He goes on to say, whether they be visible or invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by Him and for Him. They were created by Him. As you and I think about the statements that Paul has made, he lists forces, dominions. He lists these things attached to authorities, principalities, and powers. Every element that exhibits in any sense a matter of organization, represents a matter with power latent in it, was created by the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything we see, even if we don't, no wonder in light of all of that, you might appreciate that the following set of statements magnified. Verse 17, He is before all things. I've prepared some thoughts that I would ask you to consider as we give thought to that idea. What does it mean to say He is before all things? Perhaps there's a tendency to think that that's chronological in nature. That's merely another way of saying that He pre-existed it. It would seem the language, though, has deeper meaning than that. To say He is before all things apparently suggests the following. Jesus is the consummating influence, factor, and power attached to every reality that there is. You might want to think about that again with me. That's quite profound, it would seem to me. Everything in regard to life, regard to this universe, in regard to earth in particular, and that which is its station, everything in relation to the ongoing features and factors of existence find their confirmation in Jesus Christ. He brought it into being by virtue of creation, and He is the one to which it gives subjection, or should at least in this present day, and will be that before which it will owe on that great day of judgment the final consummating nature to its being. No wonder then it's such a tragedy not to obey the Lord. That's the reason you were made, and that's the reason I was made. To go through life without that obedience, apart from that glorification of Christ through what one does. You've missed the whole objective and point of life. You've missed every reason why you were ever made. He is the consummating influence to everything. It would seem Paul had that in mind in the Ephesian letter when in Ephesians 1 verse 10, he in fact made a statement similar to that one. 
perhaps for reasons of all of that, let's now develop it like this. We mentioned a moment ago about the attributes of science. For instance, that law of conservation of matter and energy. The law that attaches to a number of ways in which we encourage our students to learn the regularity and the sternness that attaches to God's physical creation. They learn about laws such as the law of conservation of momentum, the law of conservation of energy, the law of conservation of angular momentum. Chemists learn about various and sundry laws like the laws of partial pressures. Biologists study about laws of biogenesis. And that list could go on and on, but the point is well taken. Those laws are the manifestations of what scientists have now put before us, but the underlying foundation for those laws is the regularity of our Lord's superintending influence over His creation. When scientists up here at Oak Ridge collide nuclei together and study the showers of particles that come out from it, and from that deduce regularity and laws even at the atomic level, the Lord Jesus Christ is upholding every one of those laws by the nature of His being, by the greatness of who He is, and by the consummating influence that He exerts over His, in, over His creation. A scientist then can rest upon the certainty of those laws because of the certainty of the one who made the laws and the certainty of the one who upholds every one of them. Wouldn't our world be a chaotic mess if the law of gravity was here today but it wasn't tomorrow? What engineer could build any kind of safe structure within a world like that? And yet we know it isn't that way because there is a being, the one who made it, who upholds moment by moment every one of its laws. And he does so with a grandeur that is inescapable. In fact, we should take pleasure in being able to investigate by way of discovery and inventions what he has already made. Paul just highlighted some of these thoughts as he wrote to the Colossians. As you come to the bottom of that slide, why don't we look at something else he stated in verse 18. He is the head of the body. As Paul transitions from these physical observations of kingdoms and thrones and dominions and powers, he now revisits the scene of verse 13 and 14 as he now makes discussion of the body. He's talking about the church. Speaking of Christ, He is the head of the body. The church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He might have the preeminence. As we come to the latter section of the lesson this morning, let's develop this consideration of the head of the body. The body, the church, hasn't been left without a governing influence. It hasn't been left without a power that sets forth its nature and mission. Jesus is the head of the body. And just the same way that we have a physical head to our physical body and the brain within it gives it instructions and directions and motivations and incentives, so too the spiritual head of the church, which of course is, its, is, its, uh, is Jesus Christ, we know that its instruction, its delegation, its direction has been given. He's the head of the body. You'll notice in Greek as well as in English, that's a rather simple declarative statement. No room to misunderstand, no room to, in fact, misinterpret it. He is the head of the body. It is in that way, it says, who is the beginning? The beginning. 
the Lord established the church. He brought her into being and did so with all the perfectness and purity characteristic of the discussion of Acts chapter 2. The church came into being on that grand day of Pentecost as is related in that chapter. And the Lord had that beginning in mind. He goes on to say, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He might have the preeminence. I would submit to you that those last statements on that slide pointed so many ways to the following picture. As you think about the book of Colossians, it only has four chapters. But very quickly, just think about some of the ways in which Jesus is described. We've already seen so many in chapter 1. As far as its practical application, think of this. He has said in Colossians 2, 3 to be the following. We are complete in Him. We notice furthermore in that same passage, there continuing on through verse 10, it is described in such a way that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Him. If you and I would wish to be wise, if we'd wish to be knowledgeable, if we would wish to be those characteristic of understanding, it has to begin with Him. It's often been the case, you and I could note, that our world is so full of various and sundry varieties of knowledge, and as useful as they might be, may we never put them on an equal footing with the knowledge of the Lord. May we never put them on an equal footing with significance as we have found written in this Colossian letter so far today. Maybe in final note to that particular slide, didn't Jesus say in Matthew 28 that all authority, all power has been given to me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you all the way even unto the end of the world. This anthem that we have found written so far in this particular Colossian letter leads us to one final observation, and the lesson shall be yours. It is the word that is used to close verse 18. Colossians chapter 1. It again says that in all things, notice he didn't say some things, but in all things he, that's Christ, may have the preeminence. That word preeminence, the thought of being the preeminent one, brings us to this thought. That word literally means to be of the first rank. That word literally has behind it the significance of the firstness, the highest of priority attached to His being. No wonder then you and I could quite frankly and directly ask, have we and are we submitting to Him? If He is of highest preeminence, that means all things, including you and I as human individuals, should fall beneath Him, should submit to Him. His Word has been so clear he has told us that we must believe and be baptized, Mark 16, 16. He has told us that we must live faithfully until death, Revelation 2, 10, the very words of Himself. He has informed us that there is a precious home in heaven awaiting those that are the faithful. Paul, in fact, would tell the Colossians, in, in a sense, all of those things. In chapter 2, he would tell them the necessity of baptism. He would also tell them the necessity of faithfulness. In chapter 3, verses 1 to 6... In chapter 4, he would highlight for them the nature of what would be the grand reward for the faithful. No wonder the Colossian letter is a way that puts before you and me 
Jesus Christ and His greatness. Have you submitted to Him and have I? If you have, then praise be unto God for that decision. May you live faithfully until death following that dedication. But if you haven't, it may be that today you've been reminded of what you're missing. In the songs we've sung, the prayers in which we've engaged, the thought of the study of the Word of God, maybe you've been touched by what Paul wrote to the Colossians. If you have, I pray, I trust that you will in just a moment come before us and in fact in a joyous way make a statement of what you want to change in life. But may we also say, if you have at one time known the life of faithfulness, you've known what Jesus was and meant to you, but you have allowed that thought to slide, you've allowed it to slip, you've allowed it to be a distant memory, why not come back to your first love today? It could truly be a transforming day in your life. As we talk about preeminence, no wonder the lesson closes with just a brief rehearsal of what we've studied. Notice what we've learned. Jesus, the one and only Redeemer, verses 13 and 14. We learned about the characteristic of the fact He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. We've also seen in light of that study the characteristics attached to His creatorship and the fact of His sustainer of everything on a daily basis in this universe. And finally, the opportunity to see Him as the head of the body and the preeminent one. If today all isn't well with your soul, it's not because of Him. He's done everything to make you what you could be and should be. The fault lays with you. But if you want to make it right today, He would with open arms be ready to receive you. And we'd be happy to help you. If we could do that, let us do it at once while together we stand and while we sing.